Welcome to Healing Wisdom, a Thursday morning talk show featuring guests sharing their stories and knowledge. We discuss the healing aspects of the arts, metaphysics, social justice, and adventure through all types of terrain. So join me, Pandora Peoples, here on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown and WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. We're streaming worldwide at WOMR.org. My minor was in Native Studies, and there wasn't a lot of courses there available that were Cherokee history specific. Um, it was colonial history. It was it was basically just a history degree. For too long, it's been neglected, and I just think that that's something that's wrong with America. You see all those paintings of Columbus's ships pulling up. You see those people on that hill. He didn't discover it. There were people already here. We all are people who come from these same communities and we all have to be kind with each other and we all have to be together to save what is left of us, our language and our culture. Hello, hello, hello out there. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm so excited to be speaking with language advocate and filmmaker Sean Duncan. His film, We Will Speak, is screening at the Provincetown Film Festival this coming week. And so I'm very pleased to be talking about this beautiful film I saw twice. Thank you so much for being with us here. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, having me here. We Will Speak centers on people vested in saving and revitalizing the Cherokee language, and it screens at Water's Edge Cinema Thursday, June 15th at 3.30 and also Saturday, June 17th at 6 p.m. Part one of your documentary is called Treat Each Other's Existence as Being Sacred or Important. The Indian residential schools did the opposite, separated children from their families, aimed at killing the language and culture of indigenous people. Indian history is American history. It's an honor to live in these lands. And that is what a big takeaway for me was. I'm here coming to you from Wampanoag and Nauset land. But that's, I think that needs to be part of our language and understanding. It's something to attune ourselves to. And it's a beautiful film and it helps people, I think, understand that. So Cherokee Nation has been here since the end of the last ice age, correct? Yeah, the Cherokee people have, yeah. Right, the Cherokee people. So tell us about how you came to documenting these personal stories within this revitalization effort to save the Cherokee language. Myself, I'm a Cherokee language activist, and I right now I currently teach in a public school. I teach Cherokee in a public school. And so to me, this is my community. And so I get to see these people every day around the year, probably summer 2019. We, I had met these two guys and they had um, been doing documentaries about um, language in general. And so they did a couple of documentaries that involved just different types and aspects of language. And they got really interested in Sequoia, who is the inventor of our written language. And um, you can still kind of see that in the film a little bit. But when I met them, they had went to North Carolina. They had met TJ Holland. He was an amazing um just uh, he just knew so much about culture and history and he kind of sent them our way and then 
I saw that they were interviewing people and I really wanted as many people who are from our community to be in those interviews because I just believe so wholeheartedly that if um, we don't tell our story, other people are going to. And so I feel like we needed to be in those moments. And so I took an interview with them. I said a bunch of things that I think they probably had not heard yet from people. And I said, if you want to know more, let's meet back. So we did a meeting that evening and it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, I said, I know the people who are doing this work. I know uh, what's going on. I know the people who aren't being put on a platform. And so let's just, let's show the world and let's um, record the true story of these communities and of the communities that I grew up in. And so we got involved with Kelly, who I'd known since high school. She's an amazing Cherokee artist. Um, Carolyn, who was in, she was just now joining the language program and I was like on my way out. She used to work with children in the ICWA system, the Indian child welfare system. And so I had known her through um, just different other places and it just kind of became this big, amazing story. And Hopefully uh, it comes across as something of the community because that's what the heart of it was, was our community and just finding a way to put it on film. In the film, you say for second language learners, learning Cherokee requires reprogramming for your brain. I would love for you to talk about that. (laughs) So I think um, any language learner probably feels this way about whatever language um, they're learning that if once you get into a language, it's like you have to take on a new personality, a new worldview. A language is a worldview in a sense. And that's what creates the culture from that language is the way that that language and that community sees the world. It all becomes encoded in how they communicate with each other. And so that's true for Cherokee too. If you have only spoke English your whole life, it's an abrupt change if you go into the way that Cherokee sees the world. Things like when you say, uh, my brother, you know, in English, you kind of like, that's my brother. I own my brother. You know, it's mine. You know, um, that relationship is mine. But in Cherokee, a lot of times you'll say, which means me and him are brothers. And so it's almost like you have an equal partnership and it's something that you're doing together. And so things, just small things like that, you have to really reprogram the way that you think about your relationships, the world other things in the world, whether that's nature, whether that's your community, whether that's the place you come from, um, your elders, it's just a whole different way of seeing the world. And because I grew up in my community, I kind of already had a little bit of that worldview. So sometimes it, it might have seemed a little, it might be seem easier for people who come from the community. But yeah, it still was a, a shift for me because there are things that I felt like I knew about my community, but when it became apparent that it was also embedded in our language, I was like, oh, that's why we we think that way, or that's why I say it this way, even in English, you know? And so it's a, it's a cool thing. And I think that most languages do is they give you their worldview when they give you their knowledge. And it, it, I think it, I think any language has the ability to change your brain chemistry and make how you see the world different. Yes. And it seems like language is almost like a portal to understanding and connecting with the past, like a bridge to the past, but also it's it's a bridge to the future and a way to connect generations. And in your film, the elders being involved with the young people. Yeah, that, that was very important with the film is that um, we really we really wanted to make sure that no one person was the center. You know, we we have the arches of the arcs of stories, but 
everybody's story was influenced by the community around them, by the other generations around them, you know? Uh, my story, you get to see how I'm connected to my grandfather and then how that has affected my father and then how I get to come back around and, and do my part in the story. You know, you get to see how other people's grandparents had influenced them in their work. And um, I don't know, I, I kind of get emotional thinking about it because it's just, um, that's one thing that I, I, I really, at the heart of everything, wanted to make sure it was very clear is that the love of community and family and the intergenerational healing that has to take place can be an act of love. It can be an act of um, community. It can be an act of, of reclamation. And hopefully that comes across in a way that uh, really inspires people to do their own work in that way. As a community, to get what you need and continue on, you have to work together and you have to continue that work and do your part. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sean Duncan, for speaking with us today about We Will Speak. It's going to be happening Thursday, June 15th. 3.30, Water's Edge Cinema, and then also again Saturday, June 17th at 6 p.m. Thank you for being part of our Provincetown International Film Festival, and thank you so much for making this film. Thank you for having us. Today we speak with Leo Mil, a Puerto Rican and Greek transmasculine non-binary actor, writer, filmmaker, and installation artist. Leo plays the protagonist in Mutt, which follows a day in his life when three people from his past show up unexpectedly. Mutt screens at the Provincetown International Film Festival Thursday, June 15th at 6.30 at Water's Edge and Friday, June 16th at 9 p.m. at the Art House. Welcome, Leo. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be a part of Provincetown Festival. At this year's Sundance Film Festival, you won the U.S. Dramatic Special Jury Award for Acting, and you were the first trans person to do so. And also at the Berlin International Film Festival, Mutt won the Generation 14 Plus Best Film Award. Mm -hmm. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what did you think when you first read the script for this film and Tell us about how you came to this role. Yeah, so Vuk Lunglov-Klotz, the writer-director of Mutt, um, sent me the script. I mean, I actually reached out to him. I had received an email from a listserv that I'm on, an email listserv, uh, part of Act Now. It's a queer and trans acting class based in LA, led by Rain Valdez, um, who's an amazing trans actress and activist. And there was a blurb and it was like, we're looking to cast for this movie Mutt. And I read the character description and it it was like the world stopped <laughs> because I was like, oh my goodness, this is me. I've never read a character description for a lead role in a feature film where I wouldn't have to convince casting to think differently about the role and therefore consider me for it. And so I emailed Vuk and I was like, hey man, you don't know me, but I am Fenya. And also I'm so in awe of this project and what it seems like you're doing. Please just give me the part. <laughs> um, and actually what happened was he was like, calm down. Here's the script. I would love to see an audition. And I read the script and, you know, to Vuk's credit, he wrote a piece of poetry. It's, you know, the, the script is really a work of art all on its own. And then the film kind of was a new work of art that we birthed together. But the writing is so nuanced and so subtle and so real. And it just was such a exciting 
experience to read something where I would have the capacity as an actor to show different facets of my humanity and not just have my gender identity being the sole motivating factor of my character, you know? Um, so that was just such a, it was so exciting and it has been such a privilege to play Fenya and, and be a part of the project. You give a nuanced performance. It, it's very natural. And so it's a pleasure to watch. And Thank so you. as an actor and also as a filmmaker yourself, how did you prepare for this film? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the the piece that I resonated with when I read the character description were just the identity markers, you know, which is just one facet of a human being. It's like our shell that we live inside of. But ultimately, the character of Fenya, who he is in the world, is actually quite different than who I am. Like, he grew up under the context of abuse, and so he moves through the world both because of that difficult childhood experience, but then also because of being a trans person in today's world with a bit of a shell and a defensive, more prickly way of, of relating to people. And I'm naturally Leo is very soft and sensitive and silly. And I have the privilege of having an amazingly supportive mother, you know, who always was like, yes, Leo, do what you want in the world. Like people will receive you. And so I had to work with Vuk to kind of figure out what is the balance between my natural way of being and Fenya and his baggage and trauma and, and how that shapes who he is. And so we had, you know, a series of Zoom conversations and then we're a small indie film, so we didn't have the privilege to do a real rehearsal process. It was really just me Vuk and one of the actors, it was either Cole playing my ex-boyfriend or Mimi playing my little half-sister and then Alejandro playing my father. It was like the three of us in these three separate meetings, just reading through the scenes a couple times. That was our rehearsal process. Um, and then my preparation project process on my own, separate from Vuk, you know, was just digging into what are the fears that Fenya has? Like what, what comes up for him when people talk to him in a certain way. Like what are, what are the unspoken moments here? Um, and then how can I find moments to insert my softness and my sweetness that is natural to me into this film? Because I felt like, and especially in talking with Vuk, I was like, the more I can be myself and reveal myself, I think the more effective this is going to be because Vuk wrote an anti-hero, but what we kind of arrived with at the end was this really accessible protagonist character who people seem to like, you know, which is amazing because in a way that's what we need. We need a trans character who people can feel like, oh, I've got a, I've got a new friend named Fenya and they happen to be trans. Um, and that, that's a lot of the feedback we've been getting, which is really exciting. And um, I'm so grateful that that's the case because I feel like, especially in today's world, we need more accessible stories about people who just happen to be trans, you know? You talked a little bit about what working with director Vuk Lungalo float was like. He's a Chilean and Serbian trans man. I also read that some of the crew was transgender too. So yes. talk about how that experience is either similar or different from other experiences that you've had with your own films. This was the first feature that I worked on as a lead actor. And so... I 
I'm a little bit spoiled now because this set was just super queer. There were multiple other trans masculine folks on the crew. We had a first AC who was trans. We had a second AC who was trans. We had PAs who were trans. It was like a T for T love story on the set of Mutt. Um, And it just made me feel really comfortable as an actor because I didn't have to watch people like try to believe my masculinity, if that makes sense. Like I've been on sets before where it's mostly a cisgendered crew or artist team. And, you know, as an artist, I want to work with everyone. I don't just have to work with trans or queer folks. It just happens to be fun in a particular way, but I'm very open to working with everyone. But I have experienced in the past where like, if I'm playing a masculine of center character, I feel more comfortable doing so when folks on the crew and artist team are also queer or like queer leaning, because then I don't feel like I'm having to prove my masculinity to a cisgendered man who's never met a trans person before, who's looking at me and being like, in his mind, he's seeing she, her, but he's like, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's they, them, or it's he, him. Like, I, I got to believe that there, I can see them doing the mental math and that as an actor, because I'm so in tune and needing to be vulnerable, it can be a little bit distracting. That being said, I'm so grateful to those cis men you know, artists and crew members who are doing the mental math and wanting to show up and use the right pronouns or honor the person in front of them. And so all of that is okay. But when you get the privilege of being on a super trans or super queer set, I mean, you got to celebrate it because it's not every day. And it was amazing. Thank you so much, Leo Mills. Yeah, thank you. Today, we speak with filmmaker Agnia Galanova, director of the documentary Queendom, which follows artist activist Jenna, who grew up in a small, farthermost Eastern Russian town and stages performances in otherworldly and provocative costumes. Her performances become protests for opposition leader Alexei Navalny's freedom against anti-LGBTQ oppression and against the war in Ukraine. Queendom screens Friday, June 16th at 10.30 a.m. at Art House 2 and Saturday, June 17th at 6 p.m. at Art House 2 as part of the Provincetown International Film Festival. Welcome, Agnia. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hello. Thank you for having me. Initially, you were going to make a documentary film about drag queens, but what happened when you met Jenna? Yes. Uh, in the very, very beginning, I was researching for a docu-series about uh, several drag queens. Uh, but uh, So Jenna was one of the possible protagonists. But when we met, uh, I don't know, it was instantly clear for me that I don't need anybody else and I want to focus on her story. Igor, our producer, grew up in Man. And actually, the funny fact is that he's living now in uh, Provincetown. Magadan. That's very, very far away from Moscow. It's in the very far east. So then how was that when he came to the project? It was really magical because, uh, honestly, to meet uh, in a very short period of time, two persons not knowing each other from Magadan, for me, was uh, clearly a sign of, I don't know, a destiny that we all have to... Uh, work together on this film well jen appreciated as well because uh, to share your story with someone who actually understands how is it to grow up uh, being a gay boy uh, in such a harsh magadan reality it's really precious as well so we made a great team <laughs> And we see the homophobia and the acts of violence against Jenna and her friends and get a sense of how fearful Russian culture can be towards homosexuality and gender nonconforming youth. 
a friend of Jenna's mentions that uh, Magadan is the home of a gulag, a Soviet forced labor camp. And she said the memories are in their DNA. I mean, do you feel it's important to understanding the cultural identity of people from Russia as a whole? Well, um, from my perspective, I think it's crucial because um, uh, the history is so violent and so uh, deeply rooted there because uh, it's one of the places where thousands and thousands of people died in the labor camps and uh, it never been also recognized. So new generations, uh, one after another, they carry this weight and uh, Jenna, for me, was the sign of freedom because she had this uh, strength to break through and to to have this courage to uh, to fight for that she's not she doesn't need to belong to this place. That's what I'm trying to say. That she has all the opportunities in the world, you know, to express herself. Because uh, her grandparents, uh, they are also. Uh, uh descendant of this place and of this uh time that they, because they're from U- ussr and uh they are raised uh, they're born and raised in this year and it maybe it was not intentionally but they give it you know to the next generation and jenna is uh you know the bright ray of light <laughs> who was born in this place her relationship with them brings us to a vulnerable place like in the film because a lot of times we're seeing the performance side she talks about dressing up as helping her to feel fearless it's a very oppressive society and we see her at the, pl- the playground we see her at the park we see her you know at the grocery store and we really get a sense of that the oppression that they're up against which really sets the stage for the protest right i'm wondering what that journey of defiance was like for you well, it was uh, it was a roller coaster, I have to say, uh, because it, that's the beauty of the documentary, also for me, because you never know, you don't script it, you uh, just expect some uh, gift from the reality to happen in front of you. And with Jenny, it was always like that because uh, she is such a fearless person and so also sometimes unpredictable. So you always have to be. Uh, had to be ready to, uh, you know, to jump, jump in <laughs> in the train and follow her with all kind of, you know, things that she would imagine. But we built such a bond between each other. We, you know, we're like family right now. So it never was a question for me to participate or not. Film Queendom, it's screening at the Art House as part of the Provincetown International Film Festival. Are you going to be at the festival? Yes, I'm so excited. I've never been in P-Town and uh, I'm very looking forward to it. Welcome filmmaker Avi Zev Weeder. Thanks for joining me and bringing American Santa to the film festival. The world premiere is Friday, June 16th at 6.30 p.m. and it plays again Sunday, June 18th at Water's Edge Cinema at 6.30 p.m. Also, the film short will be available to stream online starting Monday, June 19th at the ProvinceTownFilmFestival.org slash film slash American Santa. So they can go to ProvinceTownFilm.org to stream it if they can't make it to P-Town. 
for the film festival itself. In 2016, the Mall of America had its first Black Santa and images of Black Santas are increasingly more common. Your film features Stafford Braxton and Santas from his company, Santas Just Like Me. Tell us what grabbed you about Stafford and his Santas and made you want to tell the story. I heard Stafford on the radio in early December. Uh, He was being interviewed uh, about his business, about bringing Black Santas, uh, mostly to families and community community uh, centers, uh, but he was starting to do it in malls. And when the interviewer uh, asked him about the pushback he gets, and he said, "Like I can't even tell you about the um, the voicemails I get. Uh, I can't say them on the radio." That's that's when I had the idea for the film uh, because the contrast between the the joy and the beauty that that he's helping create him and the Santas for uh, for families uh, contrasted with the the hate that he gets year round um, was really um, shocking and revealing to me. So why are these black Santas so important for children? Well, I think it's important that kids see someone like them. I mean, the name of the company is Santa's Just Like Me. And I think it's important that children of of any race, white, black, brown, whatever, feel comfortable and feel like they they can see themselves in the character of Santa Claus. The kids really don't care. I mean, you say, we're going to go see Santa Claus. That's Santa Claus has the white beard and the red coat. And that's Santa to to kids. They really, especially younger kids, you know, it's it's not it's not even an issue, you know, unless the uh, you know racist beliefs is, are what make racists. Okay, so it's this is a learned this is a learned thing. It's not something that that kids are born into the world with, or or or, or any of us, you know, for that matter. So Santa Claus like Stafford says, you know, can be anything. You were the son of a rabbi. Can you talk a little bit about how that shaped your interest in storytelling? Sure. Well, I mean, the the, the history of anti-Semitism, uh, you know, certainly goes back for uh, millennia uh, at this point. Uh, for me, more more individually, you know, growing up the, the grandchild of Auschwitz survivors, um, that story of of oppression, of anti-Semitism, of bigotry, um, always loomed large in my identity. Um, my father was a rabbi. We grew up in in I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Um, but even there, in um, you know a progressive East Coast city, we still uh, encountered anti-Semitism where where. One day, as a teenager, my I came home. Then there was a, uh, a a voice message on the uh, the answering machine that was threatening my father, saying, "You know, I I, I know where you are. You you got to watch your back, you dirty Jew." And it, you know, as a as a kid, it freaked me out, and I made my mom, you know, call call him. It was before cell phones. Make sure he's okay. And uh, I mean, nothing, you know, thankfully ever came of that. But um, but just to know that even, you know, that that was in the 80s. Right. But even today, I mean, 
these things have not gone away. These 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 ideas persist and they're passed down and they're uh, propagated. So a, as as a Jew, my experience with with that kind of hate um, definitely uh, has always informed me and you know kept my my radar up for you know any any group that that experiences especially in america i mean america's history of of slavery truly is you know american history and and has shaped every part of of how we live in this country again it, the, the the these ideas and these beliefs are are passed down you know from from parent to child uh, that's the only way it, it it happens. So, you know, in making the film, of really trying to wake people up to 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 show like that, you know, this is totally unacceptable, and it's completely, you know, it's completely shocking if if you really just sit for a moment to 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 think about it and to watch it. It's an important work. Thank you so much for being part of this festival. Thank you so much, Avi Dev Weeder, for being with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Healing Wisdom at Outermost Radio. All of our shows are podcasts at WOMR.org. Also check out HealingWisdomRadioShow.com and contact me at Pandora at WOMR.org. Theme music is provided by Mazin. You can find her website at mazinmusic.com. That's M A E S Y N 